Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for, well, probably another hour or so of podcasting greatness. We will see how this goes. I am welcoming back Cyprian Ivanov, one of my good friends and also a lawyer uh, who is licensed and operating out of Washington, D.C. Welcome, Cyprian. Hello again. Hello again. It has always been fun having you on. As I am wont to do, I invite my professional friends to ask lots of questions too, because I am always looking for clarification or understanding of things. And in this sense, we're talking about Scientology, and we're talking about Scientology in the legal arena. So, of course, I invite a lawyer onto my show. As Cyprian and I have had discussions about Scientology, about Scientology's ethics and justice system as an internal thing, and how that's compared to jurisprudence in the world at large. And we have discussed Scientology's um, and critics or former members' uh, legal battles and attempts to uh, you know, take on Scientology in court. An always difficult proposition for anyone taking on a group like Scientology in court is certainly a formidable task. And there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different approaches you could use, different strategies and tactics, to try to make the case that Scientology has wronged you, has done something bad or wrong or worthy of you know, some kind of punishment or retribution or financial compensation or something. And we see, it seems and feels like, more often than not, we see these battles fought and Scientology emerge as the victor without even a trial happening. And, you know, in the case of some of these lawsuits that we've seen over the last many years, uh, Luis Garcia filed for, or, you know, tried to bring a civil case for fraud. Valerie Haney brought a case of, you know, actual criminal activity that she was in alleging Scientology engaged in, but she brought it through a civil suit. And that is, as of today, that is being, you know, thrown up to the Supreme Court for consideration because um, of arbitration clauses in contracts that Valerie, as a Sea Org member and Scientologist, signed. And so she brought this case. I mean, she had to escape from Scientology. They wrangled her back in. She left, signed all their contracts, said all their, the, the things that she needed to say to get out of the doors so that they would stop harassing and stalking and, and making her life difficult. And now she's, you know, been seeking some legal retribution and has not succeeded at that. So that's sort of the short version of the latest case with this. It is still ongoing. And I invited Cyprian on because he has actually gone through all the documents that have been posted on Tony Ortega's blog, or sorry, a lot of them. All that were posted. <laughs> yes, all There's were probably more, but I they weren't posted, so I hadn't read them. Of course. So, uh, with that caveat, all the ones that were posted on Tony Ortega's blog, and Tony Ortega is a pretty championship journalist and 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 taker on of Scientology, and other cults too. He's done work on Jehovah's Witnesses and others, and he has been keeping up with these cases and fi- and and printing up on Scrib D. He posts the actual legal documents as he gets them from the public record to show the progress of the cases. Well, I can't read that stuff. I'm I'm already deep in the weeds on the academic material of coercive control and psychology and sociology. And believe me, 
<laughs> when you get into the academia of that stuff, it's complicated. It is difficult and uh, time-consuming to study that stuff. So I asked Cyprian for help. I said, you're the lawyer. Can you read this stuff and tell me what's going on with this case? And are they doing it right? Are they doing it wrong? Is there constructive criticism we can offer? I don't want to just be a court, you know, armchair quarterback. Yeah, they should have done this. They should have done that. That's easy to do in hindsight. I don't want to be that guy. And that's not what this show is about. But I but if we can learn some lessons from what's been done so that we don't repeat mistakes and we do it right the first time in future cases, or there we maybe we figure out different approaches or strategies. Um, then maybe, you know, then maybe there are possibilities in the future that we could see a change, uh, you know, a real sea change in how destructive cults like Scientology are taken to task. So, Cyprian, after having said all that, do you have further uh, caveats here on how we are going to be discussing this today? Of course. Any lawyer should be able to uh, list off a whole bunch of caveats. That's the spirit. Uh, there's a joke in law. The answer is always, it depends, and it's a matter of state law. And let's bear in mind, I am licensed in D.C., not California. I do not know California civil procedure beyond a few uh, laws that I've read and inferences I've made comparing California to the federal system. Right. Now, let me... Let me ask you a question right away, because I and I'm just going to keep firing random questions at you throughout this as they occur to me, because I believe they will occur to our audience as well. And one of those, the first question I have, just based on what you just said, is just how different are different states in terms of civil procedure, like you just said? Like, is it is California really that different from what goes on in D.C. when it comes to filing a civil suit? There's differences in uh, the assumptions behind certain documents, uh, and that might be common in theory, but different in practice, such as uh, the preference for the amount of detail listed in an initial complaint in order to survive a motion to dismiss for uh, the lack of standing. Okay. Uh, that's so, a technical term. It yeah. means uh, have you proven you've got enough for a case to go forward? Got uh, it. Okay. So, so it's so it's not a nicety necessarily, but it's not like they're using completely different terminology and completely different documentation and completely different procedures. It's just there could be these differences of how much you have to bring to the table or. Uh, that kind well, of thing? sometimes there are different procedures. Yeah. Okay. And there, the, there's also some jurisdictions have a strong preference to force people into uh, mediation. Others are more inclined to let things continue on just as a trial. There is a huge number of differences. Okay. And that's leaving aside the actual law. Interesting. Uh, right. Things. Right. So every state literally has their own set of law books that apply to that state and only to that state. Right. Yeah. Okay. But they generally are following certain common agreed upon procedures, even if the specifics of those procedures might change here and there. Generally speaking, when you go to law school, you learn the general course of how all this stuff goes. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Got it. And has your... Um, 
just so we know, and something I've actually never asked you, but have always wanted to. So has your concentration been more at the federal law level or? Federal. Fe- okay, so you're more of a federal guy. Right. Cool. Okay, good. And and good, because I've, I've often wondered about uh, certain federal issues when it comes to taking on groups like Scientology. I think there should be a, fe- I think that the federal level is where we need some legislation on, on you know, this kind of thing. But I'm... But I'm hesitant. You know, I'm not an expert in this area. I don't know what what's going to work best. And with law, uh, the devil is in the details and Satan is in the specifics. <laughs> it, it's when you deal with the coercive power of government, there's a whole bunch more concerns that need to be addressed before anything goes forward. Otherwise, you end up with the kind of kinds of mess that people keep on complaining about. Exactly. All right. Well, fair enough. So with that difference understood and and, the, and with it understood that we are going to be speaking in general terms here then, we are, I, I was telling Cyprian before the show, we're not getting into the commas and the T's and the I's and the dots and the, and the crosses and all that. We are not doing that. Because it's overly complicated and, and I believe ultimately unnecessary if we can speak at a higher level about this that might help people in any state or any area with general advice or ideas about how these cases have been pursued and how we might, you know, do something a little different with them. It may be more effective with what we're doing here, you know. And again, fully realizing that we're coming off as as armchair quarterbacks here, you know, like I get it, you know, but... I guess oh, that, don't I, worry. The job of a lawyer is to look at somebody else's hard work and point out what they did wrong. There you go. Exactly. Or to look at somebody else's hard work of pointing out what someone did wrong and say, no, you did that wrong. Right. Exactly. So so that all being said and gotten out of the way there now, let's go ahead and talk about this case that we have discussed a little bit already in an earlier podcast about um, you know, contract law. Religious arbitration are the big um, bugbears here right now that we're facing in these last few lawsuits that have been brought against Scientology. They have used this strategy of legal defense of, well, the contract you signed said that you are going to, you know, settle any disputes with us through religious arbitration, which we have full control over. Religious arbitration consists of a panel of Scientologists who will hear what you have to say. These will be Scientologists, quote-unquote, in good standing, meaning that the church approves of them as Scientologists. They are good Scientologists, loyal Scientologists. They will do what they are told by the Mother Church and its, and its representatives. And, um, and so you look at that and go, Okay, I just escaped from a destructive cult. I'm bringing that cult to task for having harmed and victimized me, and you're and and yet the legal chicanery here is that you have to go back into that cult world completely under their control in order to try to plead your case that you were wronged by this group and the group's very DNA refuses to it makes it so that they refuse to concede that the church did anything wrong ever at any point. So these two things don't go together too well, and anybody who knows anything about Scientology knows this. Yet we can't seem to get judges and lawyers to get their wits around this 
in a way that they can explain it to judges in a way that judges can understand where are we going wrong here? What, what, and, and let's take a look at this case study of Valerie's as the, as the latest example of what we can talk about. Um, I would like to point out that a lot of what lawyers do is try to get paid for worrying about stuff. And oftentimes that means throwing in more detail, throwing in more clauses, throwing in uh, more research to make sure something is solid. Mm -hmm. And when you have an organization with unlimited funds, they can keep doing that. It may not be the best arguments available because the facts may not be on their side, but they certainly have the research on their side. Mm. But when you're trying to bring a case against a large organization with an experienced legal team, and this applies more broadly, such as people trying to sue various large companies, uh, the fact that the benefit of the doubt is on the defendant, because we're in an innocent until proven guilty system, uh, the inexperience or lack of detail of the plaintiff is going to be a huge problem for them. So this is where just understanding to put forth detail is going to be critical. Right. And did you feel, based on what you and I were corresponding about when you were going through the documents and sort of offering to me your criticism of, you know, what was going on with them or where you thought they might have fallen down a bit, it seemed that you indicated to me that they were not, you know, short shrifting it, but they weren't exactly providing mounds of evidentiary information, you know, real fact-based stuff to substantiate the claims they were making of the stalking, harassment, you know, forced um, isolation, kidnapping, et cetera. Do, what, do you, would you care to elaborate on, on those things? Uh, any legal claim has to be built on two things. One is the actual claim itself, and then you have the facts that go to it. So you have to, uh, even assuming all the facts are true, you have to have a coherent legal argument. Uh, and then you also have to have the facts to support it. Mm -hmm. And these are both uh, going to involve specifics. Uh, now, is it, specific enough, be... is it specific enough to say, okay, well, I had to escape out of the trunk of a car, so, and I'm not being snide, I'm actually, I'm really asking right now, okay? I mean, it sounds snide, it sounds like, well, duh, and yet, when you get into the details of this stuff, guys, you'd be amazed at how far you have to go to show that getting in the back of a car and, and, and escaping from, a, from the gold base was, was something like that is somehow a, a bad thing for Scientology. You know what I mean? Like, is like it's their fault that you had to do that. You know, it, it, it's amazing how things can get twisted around in the uh, courts. Uh, um, uh, an incident like that is certainly suggestive, but how one of the tasks of a court is to distinguish between people who are scared for good reason and people who are reasonable but scared for uh bad reasons or crazy people who are scared for no reason and uh, just filling the court system with paranoid claims. Right. And I've read all three of those. 
Exactly. So, so, like, for example, the reason why we can't just assume or go with the person who jumped in the back of the car, but jumped in the trunk, the reason we can't just go with that and go, well, duh, obviously, is because, yeah, but what if she jumped in the back of the car because she just took $3,000 out, out of the treasury office and is actually making her escape? You know, something like that, right? And that was one of the issues in trying to figure out what happened at Jonestown. One of the guys who survived had taken a whole bunch of money from him. No kidding. I did not know that. That just made that up. That's that. That's very interesting. Okay. Okay. But again, you need all the facts in order to lay it all out in a narrative that makes sense and that is a co coherent, cohesive whole, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So you have isolated facts, but the significance of them is very much going to be unclear until you get context and that context requires facts right okay got it something is when you i'm going to edit this out but when you move there's a little sort of sound i'm not sure like a yeah that's good we're fine we're fine just as you are right there somehow when you were moving your hands it was creating a sound in the microphone no no about Sounded like a brushing or something, maybe, or a rubbing. I'm going to guess it's the cord from this thing. Yeah, I think it's the cord. Okay, got it. All right, whatever. No big deal. Not, it, it, it's not too loud. It was just a little thing. I just wanted to see if we could do something about it. If not, it's no big deal. Okay. Um, uh, okay, good. So getting back. Um, so did you so, – so could you describe – you know, what it is you saw in the series of filings and documents that you did see, did read, did go through, what, what's your critique of how, of how they were approaching it? You know, procedure aside, I mean, I understand that, you know, the little niceties of this form or that form or this much data or that much data, but overall, you know, if we look at the, if we look at the bigger picture of how this case has proceeded from beginning to end, where, what could they have done better? To understand that part of that is that you have to look at how these things are decided. And the court has to, and it was a request for a jury trial. So the core factual issues have to be decided by a jury. Uh, juries decide the fact, in a jury trial, juries decide the facts, judges decide the law. So there are a bunch of legal standards uh, that will happen before it ever goes to trial, but the core factual claims will eventually be decided by a jury. Now, that's not the case for this one, though, because it's not even making it to jury. Well, the uh, the credibility of certain claims ends up being treated as a as a matter of law, even though it involves a number of factual claims. Okay, what does that so, mean? It's one of those kind of, it's not really supposed to be that way, but it is this way because juries are really hard to get together and expensive, and uh, it's a huge, painful process, so we'd rather have judges sort a bunch of stuff out first. Got it. And that's your pre-trial activities. Yes. Pre-trial takes a long, long time. Yes, it does, and, and in fact, surprisingly so. I mean, we... The, the, the law shows 
that we are all, you know, indoctrinated by, you know, your law and orders and your, you know, L.A. law and all of these, just skimp right over those. Those are just montages. They're just, you know, late night in the office, you know, with boxes and paperwork, but you don't really get how much work is being done for months sometimes on this stuff. Uh, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Um, leaving aside my own painful efforts at drafting motions, uh, there's uh, the issue that a number of these legal questions have to be decided based on the limited amount of facts provided. So a common thing would be an injunction that wasn't requested in this case, but what that is is a request for a court order to require or prohibit someone to do something, and there are certain legal standards for it. So you have to allege a certain number of facts to meet that legal standard. Okay. And that is treated as purely a matter of law, but it is a rather intricate and fact-specific thing. Okay. The same applies to how you handle uh, a mandatory arbitration clause. Okay. So here you have the fact that a contract was signed. You have the contract. There's the person's signature on it. The person is not disputing that that is their signature. This is all taken up prior to, like, this is part of what we're talking about here, right? This sort of back and forth? Yeah. All right. So the judge establishes way before he's even saying, okay, we're going to get this to a jury. He's establishing that all the dominoes are basically lined up, that all the facts actually, it, that there's enough there and that it is sensible enough that it looks like this is something that should be presented to a jury. There are several steps. One of them is standing. Yeah. Uh, and that is assuming all the facts are in favor. Does it present enough of a legal claim to go forward. Right. So now, having established that this pretrial stuff is important, and the fact that both Luis, Valerie, and others have taken on Scientology and not gotten past this point. In fact, Laura DiCrescenzo, I think, spent something on the order um, of like 12 I years. I think they got past standing. They didn't get past other stuff. Well, I'm talking the whole pretrial phase. I'm talking about this entire activity where this happens... Then you have a jury happen, and that's what we all think of as the actual trial, and then you get a decision. But until you, can, but before you can even get to that jury, it's not a done deal that you bring a charge and you're going to be in front of a jury. And I, I don't know how broadly understood that is. I, I know until fairly recently, I didn't really get that. So, you know, so I'm not trying to lay my misunderstandings on everybody else, but I am trying to lay this out in a way that people get that there's a whole process here in this pre-trial thing. And Scientology has mastered and paid good money, as we've mentioned, to research every single thing you could do to like delay and hold off and keep this pre-trial stuff going to wear people down and or get just, just get the cases thrown out. And so they never make it to a jury. And I also, and I was just reminded because Laura DiCrescenzo, for example, was, you know, was fighting back and forth with the church, trying to get a trial you know, by jury 
And I think it took her something on the order of eight to, eight to ten years or something before they finally settled when it was clear that they had run the course of every single thing they could do to try to prevent her from getting in front of a jury on a forced abortion of her as a minor. She was a minor when this happened. Or, and, and, uh, and suicide as well. And, uh, and they finally exhausted all their <laughs> arguments and it was going to go to a trial, and then Scientology settled. Okay, we'll give you the money. Fine. We'll do it, right? Rather than, rather than have them go in front of a jury, because they know if they get in front of a jury, it's, it's probably game over, because that's when all the emotion and, you know, and, the, and the actual case can be made in front of live human beings who are more interested in the human, human being in front of them than they are in the specifics of the of the, you know, clauses of and, the contracts they and signed. And the jury is free to uh, decide things based on their determination of facts as opposed to a judge who is required to go off of what is in the record. Right. So it's an interesting system. It's an interesting system. But anyway, getting back to Valerie's case now, um, so this whole pre-trial thing is kind of where we're talking about and where we're, where, what, where, what we are critiquing right now is how do we run this gauntlet and get a case in front of the jury, and then we can worry about dealing with juries. Right now, we can't even get to that spot. So how do we get through these pre-trial things? Well, this religious, this arbitration is now, you know, the, the, the big winning strategy for Scientology, the, all this contract stuff that they invested so much time and energy in, in, in putting together is now paying off for them. And they're able to uh, use that to bludgeon these people into, into further submission, basically re-traumatizing them as far as I'm concerned. But what do you see as far as where could they, again, have done better in this process to not get stuck in this religious arbitration thing? Or... Or was there no way out of that, and it was always going to go there, and there was just nothing that can be done? Um, it was always going to go there. Mm -hmm. But to, to really follow along, the steps of the process need to be uh, understood. Okay. So you have the uh, initial complaint filed. This is where the person lists uh, the facts uh, – sorry, the legal claims and the facts supporting it. Yep. Uh, you file a sum. Uh, you send it to the court. Uh, the person you're suing is that uh, a, is that a point where you would basically be making your case, like right from the get go? Here it is. Here's the case. The uh, some of the core of it. Yes. Okay. The do you, facts. Do, is it is it meant that facts you, are going to be important? Yeah. Is it meant that you give? all the facts at that point like here they all here it is boom da boom da boom da boom you can amend it okay and that is where most or at least a lot of cases get a heck of a lot more detail is when they amend but, their initial filings their initial complaint right okay why, and and why not just shotgun the whole thing at the beginning? Too much? They don't want. They don't. They want to see if if this little bit's going to fly, and then they'll fill in. Um, What's the idea oftentimes there? Oftentimes, time limits. Time limits. In in so, what way? You only have ten hours to get the case together. So do what you can in uh, that. Or? Well, it's like you've got three years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the person walks into your office, and what? What? 
this was two years, 51 weeks ago. Oh, great. Uh, quick, tell me everything you've got, and uh, I'm going to try to uh, put all this together and get it to the court uh, uh, by express mail. Okay, so you're referring to statute of limitations there. Yes. Okay. In other words, after a crime has been committed or an act has been done that's illegal, you only have so much time to get that in front of a court's attention before the, you know, that's your statute of limitations. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And, um, okay. And we won't, we, I'm not going to get into the, the, the pros and cons of statute of limitations right now. But that's why a lot of initial complaints are rushed and Got it. Uh, not very complete. Okay. And the law knows that. Uh, you can amend it over time. All right. So basically the idea is if you're coming in at the last second because of statutes of limitations, you get the filing in there. Now the process has begun. Now the statute has been, has been met. So now you can then throw more information into the mix as the judge goes, well, wait a second. This doesn't make sense. What about this and this and this? Oh, yeah, judge. Let me get you that data. Right. Bop, bop, bop. Is it kind of like that? Yes. Uh, in understanding how uh, cases go, you uh, particularly civil cases, you have to remember that process matters. Uh, courts hear a lot of stuff. They have to isolate them into elements to make sure things are being handled without the emotional and informational input of the judges. Mm. That's going to happen. But that's something that it's split up to try to avoid. Interesting. So you start with the initial complaint, which contains the initial legal claims and the initial facts that has to get reviewed by a judge to determine standing. Uh, is there enough of a claim to go forward? Uh, a copy of that goes, goes to the court, obviously, but also to the defendant. Then you end up with some motions back and forth. Uh, then you end up with discovery, which is the time in which evidence starts being collected. Okay. So it's I, more than just factual claims. It's trying to find proof of those factual claims. Right. Okay, got it. So in your review of what was done with Valerie's case, obviously all these steps were followed in a general way. What did you see that you thought could have been improved upon or could have been done differently? In the Haney case, it yeah. didn't even get to discovery. Right. They stopped it before it even got to that point. And that's because the core legal question was, does the arbitration clause in the various contracts she signed take precedence over anything else? And uh, let's remember... The Supreme Court looks very favorably upon arbitration. It is presumed to be entered into voluntarily and with the knowledge of the people signing the contract. Now, that right there is our first point of departure from reality. So how did they address that in the Haney case or did they even try to head that off at the pass? Could they have headed that off or addressed that so that that assumption could be shown in this case, not in all broad cases, but in this case, to not be a correct assumption? 
I think that at least since the Garcia case and uh, the judge's opinion in the Garcia case, uh, especially footnote four, uh, which concluded that the arbitration was uh, legitimate because it granted something that was used as evidence, not as a legal matter, but as an evidentiary matter, he assumed that it was a fair process because they got something. But that's that not see, a that... reasonable conclusion factually. No, but that's the one he made. Well, see, that's the thing. It sounds bizarre to me because they got something. Okay, well, what does that, what does that mean exactly? Like, what do you mean they uh, got something? Like they got uh, a piece of uh, paper? Here, here you go. They, you know, like, what do you mean they got something? Um, eighteen thousand out of nearly a million that they were asking for. Yeah, so that means it's a fair process according to the judge. No, uh, it means he was treating that as evidence that it wasn't just a directed verdict. Oh, I, I'm sorry, a, a, a what verdict? Uh, it, that it wasn't just uh, the top of Scientology telling uh, the arbitrators what to do. Okay, even though that's exactly what goes on there. So how and this do we... is where you have to get into the facts, because well, without the facts, they're going to assume that it functions like any regular arbitration process. Beautiful. So how do what? So, again, using Haney, not 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 uh, Luis Garcia's case as the case study we're looking at here, because that we're here and now we're not retrying Luis's case and we can't go back and change that. Although I suppose we could look at what happened with Luis's case as well in terms of how did this happen. That's what I'm really trying to wonder is is not necessarily how did this happen because I think we've I think we've described that quite well. It's how could this have been prevented? Um, well, going into it, mm -hmm. contract offenses uh, such as duress and fraud would have been critical and having facts relevant to that in either the initial or the first amended complaint would have been critical and were those facts included in those complaints in those first issues not really right so that that because that's kind of what i relevant to that some potentially relevant stuff was included, mm -hmm. but not enough to give a clear picture. Okay. And, okay, so how could they have buffered that or or put more in there? Like, what what did you see? And I, I know, you know, we don't have the documents in front of us, and I do not want to get into a line-by-line line on breaking down, you know, how they could have put this fact here or this fact here, but I want to give a general idea to the public that, it's, you know, what I'm trying to differentiate here for myself in our conversations and for the audience is that there is a difference between a systemic issue where no matter what you feed into the process, the process is going to give you a bad result. That would be a systemic issue. I believe from your our conversations here that I was I was thinking in my frustration and upset about the repeated problems of of uh, you know of lawyers taking on uh, ex members taking on Scientology, that they that there was a systemic problem that they couldn't get justice because there was some issue with the process. But what I'm getting now, 
and trying to and trying to understand, and I believe I am from what you've been describing to me in our in our correspondences and now, is that had they actually had the lawyers done different things, the process might have actually worked. So that's Probably. what I'm trying to nail down is what could they have done differently or should they be doing in the future differently so that we make this process work for us? Fraud and duress are necessarily fact dependent. They require a lot of discussion of context and specifics. And why do you think that didn't happen in these in these cases? I'm going to assume the same with Luis. I, I didn't ask you to read through all the public documents on it, but the outcome seems to indicate that this assumption you're speaking of, that they're going to have a fair, reasonable arbitration according to, you know, basic rules of decency and fairness, it is assumed when it shouldn't have been. So it seems the lawyers maybe didn't make this clear. I don't know. I can see a couple pitfalls. One, the attorneys involved might be used to dealing with conventional personal injury cases, and uh, Scientology is just a very different environment and requires a degree of learning to understand. Right. And that really is not something that is easily communicated to someone used to living in a safe environment. Right. You've been following me and Scientology as a non-Neverin. You were never involved in Scientology, but you've been interested in this for quite some time. And it's all the fun of Kremlinology uh, since the fall of communism. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so for whatever reason, you've been following this, and you are a lawyer, and you do under, and you do have a legal mind with this. So, how do how long do you think it would take? For a, a for a regular non familiar attorney, just some guy, you know, you're gonna get who's who's a decently competent legal representative. How long would it take for for them to get their wits around the things they would need to understand about Scientology as a specific kind of beast here that they are going after? You know, like, like, what do you think that lawyers need to be doing differently with this kind of work when we talk about destructive cults and, and undue influence? I think How, they you know? need to be aware of the pervasiveness of uh, confidential reporting, sec checking, the belief in the accuracy of the e-meter, and the... Uh, escalation of coercive measures against uh, ex-members. Okay. And that existing members. it doesn't members just stop that. at uh, legal measures. Right. That's right. Um, and are they, how, like, like, is this, I'm just trying to see if there's a breakdown in, in, in process here that we can fix. You see what I mean? And I'm wondering, like, we as ex-members suffer from the fact that we try to get counseling, we try to get legal advice or representation, right? We try to get medical help, and we are burdened by having to explain for hours and hours what we've been through because it's so unusual to, I guess, how people think life usually goes. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, but then again, I'm used to uh, looking at uh, uh the aftermath of communism and 
It seems pretty fucking similar, but... (laughs) Because it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not just Scientologists, right? It's not just ex-Scientologists. We run into this with Jehovah's Witnesses. We run into this with Mormons. We run into this with, you know... Less so than with the Mormons, but... Less so. Less so. But there's abuse there, and there are people who have been quite riled up about it. And, you know, and how do you explain to a judge that, you know, you shouldn't have a a grown-ass, you know, unlicensed, untrained person, uh, you know, asking little kids about their sexual activity under the guise of religious pastoral counseling. It's disgusting, you know, but so that, so there would be a similar, the right person to judge that it's, no, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out as an example of the kind of difficulties that we encounter in this world or in this space. And, and, and having to get this across to people. So, so it seems like, we need to punch up or somehow provide more material somehow? Or how do we get lawyers to easily be able to consume this information? There is a difference between getting lawyers to understand that it is a coercive environment uh, in which there is a pervasive fear of consequences and being able to articulate it sufficiently on the record for a judge. Right. Now, both of those needs details. You need to distinguish the facts of someone who is in Scientology from the crazy person putting up uh, posters uh, in town claiming that they're being pursued by a cult uh, and begging uh, the president to help them. Right. Because I have, and, 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 and for anybody out there who might think this sounds all very far-fetched, I get emails <laughs> all the time. And I get emails from people who are ex-members of destructive cults, and they are saying things that are far beyond any stretch of reality. I know how far Scientology can go, how bad things can get, but this idea of being stalked by 20 people surrounding you every time you walk out of your house, you know, in black suits with black helicopters, (sighs) I mean, I've gotten emails like that, right? And I have to go, man, okay. You know, because you can't just go, well, that's not true, because anyway, it's just, it's difficult. It becomes difficult. So you do get those kind of people. And that is why corroboration is important as an evidentiary factor. That is why analysis by outsiders is an important factor. That is why detail, detail, detail. See, now this, yeah, now this is what I was, okay, so like, for example, would you have, would psychologists' evaluations or write-ups of, you know, as a therapist, would that assist in some fashion with the judge? Look, I've been treating this person and professionally, I can tell you that there is more going on here than paranoia or something. I mean, could that be a a potential, of, of, of any potential use when it comes to the coercive factors? Um, possibly, possibly not. I'm trying to think about the federal rules of evidence right now and the confidentiality issues involved. Mm-hmm. And just because a person makes sense to a therapist does not necessarily mean it makes fact that it's factually true. You still have to treat that with a degree of, uh, of analysis. Mm-hmm. However, uh, one of the things that surprised me when reading the uh, initial and the first amended complaints was that there wasn't a lot of footnotes for the factual section. Mm-hmm. 
uh, there were some citations for the Watersheim case, but you, there were so many incidents in the past, uh, reports of uh, various uh, harassment, like uh, what uh, Marty Rathbun's wife was subject to, uh, the the uh, various uh, lawsuits filed. Uh, there's a lot of incidents that are corroborated that could have been cited to. Uh, so that was not done. Okay. 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 But there and that was even, I'm sorry, let me interrupt you. So that was even in the amended complaint when they had more time to go back and actually fill it in. They still didn't fill it in with a, you know, boat. Well, like this would be the sort of thing if I was the client, I would say, listen, overwhelm them with information. Give them so many fucking facts on this stuff. They're going to, you know, I, 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 I don't know the overwhelm, but I would certainly want to be well represented by facts. Yes, this is, and everything about such a case would benefit from detailed facts. Mm -hmm. In many respects, the Haney uh, case was would have been a perfect case to challenge the uh, the legitimacy of some of these contracts. Mm -hmm. She she was essentially raised by the Sea Org. Mm -hmm. You have a whole bunch of special relationships there. And having a contract urged upon you by uh, by such special relationships increases the uh, concerns about uh, fraud, misrepresentation, coercion, and that sort of stuff. Exactly. Like, could you? Could would it be a reasonable point to make? I mean, did she even read the contracts? Did she even understand them? Maybe well, the judge doesn't care, but there are reasons why Scientologists don't even bother. There's a level of trust. There's a level of, of authority. There are, you know what I mean? Uh, people are presumed to have the duty to read it. Fair enough. So, you, so there is they no... they don't, but okay. uh, they're supposed to. Okay. Uh, however... A conf a uh, a special relationship such as between a conventional religious minister and uh, their parishioner, between a parent and a child, uh, between uh, an accountant and their client, etc. Those are positions of special trust, and in which uh, a self-serving contract is treated with a great deal more suspicion and concern over duress or fraud or similar things. Right, right. Because especially when you're in a situation where you have put your faith and trust in people. Now, I get it. I get it as far as the judges go. I get it as far as, you know, how do you say that? Caveat and poor? I, I, let the buyer beware, Caveat right? and poor? Yeah. Uh, let the buyer beware. That's actually not a current legal principle in the U.S. No, but the but, concept of it, the concept of just, look, you, you, you know, you signed it. That means we're going to assume you read it. I mean, it's not unreasonable. But... The special relationship aspect you bring up is important. I have never heard it in those terms, but this, but the fact that, you know, if your father, if your mother told you, oh, you don't have to read that, just science, just legal nonsense, just, you know, we got to get you going, we got to get, you know, we got to, you know, get on with whatever. You know, most people are like, oh, it's my dad, it's my mom, you know, they're not going to lie to me about this, you know, sort of thing. Anyway, it's just this, I'm just 
harping on the special relationship thing, probably spinning my wheels here, but just feels like there, you know, you'd be able to show that this person was in such a position of trust to this organization that they felt that they would ne- that they didn't even have to read. It, it wouldn't even be a problem, you know. I mean, this organization would never do these things to them, you know. And, and that's one of the areas in which details matter. Right. So I would and imagine providing Mexico- these details would be would not be burdening the court with too much information. Correct. Okay. Uh, it's better to have too much information than too little. Right. And it is okay to just dump it all on the court and go, this is the situation. And oh, expect yeah. the court to go, okay, well, now I have to go through all this and sort it out and and see for and the judge, right, has to sort this because out. And go, even if they don't believe you, it's on the record and that can be used on appeal. Got it. Okay. So, so the stronger the case you can make from the very beginning, fact, 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 regulation, citation, this, that, this, that, right? Boom, boom, boom. The more you can do that, the stronger your chances are that you're going to get through this pretrial process. Yes. And that's what we are not seeing in these cases. Yes. Okay. I was very frustrated when I read the initial complaint because I saw so little detail. This was, in many ways, a perfect fact pattern to go against some of the contracts because so many of the duress and misrepresentation arguments were strong uh, simply because she joined the Sea Org when she was a kid. She was essentially raised by the Sea Org, signed a contract to go into the adult adultish version of the Sea Org, uh, kept in a controlled environment for virtually her entire life with limited outside information. Right. And a pervasive snitch culture in an organization that had a well-deserved reputation for going beyond the law uh, to harm its enemies. Now, this was a per sorry. I know it's frustrating for you and for me. And I and I I I know I come off like, but I'm just it is frustrating because now I'm seeing it's not process. It's not the system. It's it's just bad lawyering. I mean, and and I, you you know, bad. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to just like I said, I don't want to just, you know, be critical just for the sake of being critical. I want to solve this. I want to cure this problem. I want this to. I want people to succeed at this. You know. And there are snippets of information uh, provided, yeah. but they were only snippets. It wasn't. I mean, just taken individually, that doesn't tell you much. Right. Because you can. I mean, uh, uh, I was uh, going over legal papers while there was an armed guard in the room. That doesn't mean <laughs> much. Right. By itself, look, there's a security guard at the grocery store I go to. That doesn't mean I should feel threatened because there's a security guard there. Right. Now, the overall environment of uh, what it means to be a declared SP, uh, the ongoing campaigns of uh, illegal harassment uh, and uh, other illegal activity, that is absolutely freaking critical to at least the state of mind the person would have been in. 
Exactly. So having an armed guard in a mafia-affiliated business means something different than an armed guard from an upstanding, uh, totally law-abiding business. Exactly. So you really do need to take the time to detail all of these independent pieces of information and just don't assume anything on the part of the reader or the judge or the people who have decisions to make about this stuff. You need to overwhelm them with all of this information that is going to paint a picture that they can't help but walk away going, oh, I get it. You were completely yes. mentally and psychologically overwhelmed. You never had a chance. And they, and they just took advantage of that. And if you can paint that picture with facts and corroboration, then you're golden. Then, then you have a real chance of getting through this. Yes. See, that's what that's what we need. That's exactly what I'm looking for here. And that's that's exactly what we have got to start seeing. Is it the nature of the process that lawyers just try to do the bare minimum, or is it something or do you think we're looking at an at a at a case here of particular they really could have done a better job and they really needed to? It depends. Well, I mean, in this the, case, what do you think with what you were reading and seeing? I mean, it really depends. Uh, really? In that case, I yeah. kind of... Different cases are different. Yes. Um, some cases are very intense, very detail-oriented, and that's because there's a lot at stake, uh, not just for the client, but for the lawyer and how that case gets resolved. Others are kind of a turn and burn cycle. Mm -hmm. so, you so there's kind of a division between those that are all in lots of detail, lots of attention for only a few cases versus those that have very little attention for a very large number of cases. DOI cases, they're pretty simple. Uh, pick them up, handle them, doesn't require a whole lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, say, a huge contract issue between uh, AOL, Time Warner, and I don't know, Disney, uh, those contracts are probably going to be 20 pages at minimum. So yeah, that's going to take a lot more attention and you're going to see a lot different kind of complaint filed than for, say, your typical uh, product liability case. Got it. Got and, it. And uh, those attitudes can be hard to shift. And when you're going from a, oh, here's a simple medical malpractice case, as long as I simply uh, point out these things that uh, would normally be sufficient to find misconduct, uh, then everything's uh, okay, which is not what you can do in a context-dependent case as with Scientology. Right, especially with the fact that we don't have laws on the books on this side of the pond that recognize, you know, that coercion and psychological manipulation is a very real thing. And, 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 and the rest is a well understood concept, but it is not, uh, I don't know if it has a specific statutory definition, but there is at least a body of case law about it. About duress. Right. Okay. But does duress imply coercion? Sometimes. Right. Isolation, manipulation, control. Over, Those are factors. Over a, uh, over a period of time, you know. Um, there's a very famous case, the Odrit CV, I can't remember, school district case. Uh, this was back in the 60s. A teacher uh, was re 
uh, arrested by the police in connection with some uh, homosexual conduct, which was illegal at the time. And he was threatened with uh, public uh, disclosure and uh, being fired. So a bunch of uh, uh, school officials uh, came to his uh, house and uh, uh, pressured him to resign, to sign a contract and resign. And uh, the number of factors in it became very famous as one of the ways that uh, duress is analyzed. Hmm. And when you read the uh, judge's opinion in the Haney case, he went through it. And he brought this up. Sorry? He, He brought this up? The judge did? Uh, yes, it was mentioned both by one of the better uh, filings by uh, Haney's lawyers and by the judge. Okay. They came to different conclusions, but that was the major case they used. Oh, really? Was that case? They cited that case as an example. Yes. Interesting. That would be part of the argument construction, but it wouldn't be the whole thing. Right, because right. It, it, it tells you the factors to argue. It doesn't tell you uh, how the, what those facts are in the case. And you really have to argue the facts. Well, that's the thing, because what's missing there is the artificial milieu control aspect of the Sea Org and the fact that she was raised in it. So those two things are key, key influencers to her state of mind when signing these contracts, the legitimacy of them as a result. So I think that's, uh, I, so I, I get it. I get what you're saying there with duress. It's just, it's that plus more. The, the thing the teacher went through, it's, it, yeah, it's that kind of situation with the with the duress, but it's, it's added to, you know, by these other factors. And these factors apparently were not detailed or laid bare in the, in the arguments. Uh, correct. Okay. I mean, there were snippets that... Uh, were suggestive, but they but you can certainly construct uh, an innocent reason for a lot of it. Right. Oh, a security guard uh, grabbed her while she was trying to leave. You don't know the entire context. That wasn't discussed. Exactly. Well, exactly, because you can't if you unless you give all the context, you can't tell if a security guard grabbing somebody is a feature or a bug. So, or if it's for a legitimate or illegitimate reason. My, same. I mean, my point is as a feature, that's a good thing. As a bug, it's, you no, know, you don't want that behavior. I mean, you want security guards might have to get into tussles with people. That's why you hire them. That's why they're trained. So it's not necessarily, you know, value uh, obvious. <laughs> you know, is it good? Is it bad? We don't know. If all you know is he grabbed the person. So... I, I'm just trying to restate what you're saying, that basically, but if you give all the context to it, then it makes, then the judge can't help but see why that's nefarious or sinister. Uh, yes. Okay. That's the goal. That's the goal. Right. And why, from, from your reading of it and from what you've seen uh, and experienced of this, I mean, is there some, do you think it's just a time constraint? Why, 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 why not offer all that stuff? I mean, if it's, if you read it and you can see it, why couldn't they? Why do you think? I didn't work on the case, mm-hmm. and all I know is what I read from uh, 
what was posted by Tony Ortega. Sure. So all I am doing here is speculating. Uh, no, this is understood. This is understood. But it's but it's educated speculation, which is different from me speculating on it. Noted. Um, uh, at least some of the attorneys seem to have been from a very small firm that uh, handles personal injury cases uh, with presumably uh, not much experience with uh, coercive environments. Right. Okay. And uh, some of those snippets from the facts look like it was just uh, copying it. Sorry, I'll. Uh, looked like it was just taking phrases uh, commonly used about the Sea Org uh, without uh, presenting it in a way to support the argument. For example, describing the Sea Org as elite doesn't exactly do much to convince a person that it was an unreasonable imposition. Okay. okay. Because prestige can be a reasonable basis for people choosing worse conditions. Sure. Sure. Well, it's interesting. So it sounds a little bit, if I might, I, maybe this is a stretch, but, you know, I'm learning about academic writing, which is very, very different from regular writing, I guess you could say, you know, the difference between formal Latin and vulgar Latin, right? Like you have, the, like there's common speech. Let's there's... see Nassim Taleb. What's that? Let's see Nassim Taleb. I don't know what that means. He's a black swan book guy. Oh, uh, okay. He's remarkably casual in his writing style. Yes. Yes, he is. Yes. Um, that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, that. I think it seems to me that the difference here be, from what you're describing, I'm trying to translate this a little bit here, and it seems like if you, when you read academic papers, you know, they have to be written in such a way that you are not... You know, well, I kind of felt good that day, right? It's not, you know, it's not, it's not slanguage or regular common speak. It's, it's very cited and and footnoted, as you mentioned, and and there's a lot of reference to other things, and and you have to back up everything you're saying. If you make a claim in an academic paper, you got to prove it. You got to show that that claim is legit. So it's not just you know, tabloid or news media sort of thing where it's sort of like you just throw out this alarming statement, the elitist Sea Org, you know, persecutes their members. You don't get to, you don't get to just say that in a legal document. You have to then show the evidence. Like in academia, you have to provide the evidence or cite the papers or show the reasons why you're saying that. Is right, that, am I, am I translating this right? The judge is there to make decisions based on the evidence on the record, mm -hmm. not their personal experience, not their personal knowledge. There are cases in which they are allowed to make a factual inference uh, based on common knowledge, but if it's in dispute or likely to be in dispute, then that's probably not a good thing for them to do. Now, there are ways to get around that when you're dealing with a legal question like, uh, does the arbitration clause seem enforceable? But uh, most cases, no. Okay. So the lawyers in these cases, for the, for, you know, Haney, for example, 
really need to bring their A game to this thing. Like, they've really got to show fact A, fact B, fact C, it, uh, inescapable conclusion D, <laughs> right? Yes, and that's one of the reasons why it is helpful to read other cases uh, and see how they present not just their legal arguments, but their factual arguments. Right. How do you articulate a complex situation? How do you provide sufficient detail? Okay. And when you got into, uh, uh, for example, uh, a case about the Bundy siege, uh, the judges uh, on the Supreme, the judges were arguing about, okay, there's this fact. Does that count as? Uh, uh, having this legal impact or that legal impact. Eventually, when you're trying to go back to uh, uh, prior cases, part of it comes down to analyzing prior facts. Okay. So the more facts you bring, uh, the easier it is to build a record, not just for your case, but for those that come after you. One of the great triumphs of the civil rights movement of the 1950s was a series of legal cases challenging segregation, and they were bringing detailed arguments about segregation in one specific area, uh, and they provided a track record of, uh, okay, segregation was ended here, nothing bad happened, uh, here's all the evidence we've got. Let's move forward and bring that in another case and another case and another case. And they built a pattern of cases uh, which dismantled uh, several different segregationist arguments instead of just trying to uh, go against the entire trunk of it uh, at once. And uh, had they done, they would have been rejected as many earlier cases were. But by going through specific arguments, going through specific details, and building a pattern, they built legal a legal theory that was eventually supported by uh, by higher courts. Got it. That segregation was wrong, uh, and not just morally wrong, but uh, socially undesirable and counterproductive. Yep. Yep. Totally. Totally get that. So so it might take some time. Might take a lot more effort, might take a lot more brain power, might take a lot more teamwork to get that evidence together and utilize the earlier cases in Scientology litigation's uh, past, especially Wallersheim, where Scientology was almost fully exposed. I mean, the whole, they were about to pierce the corporate veil with that case, at least if you listen to Jeffrey Augustine's interpretation of it, they were right on the edge of getting past, you know, showing in court how the Sea Org actually operates. And, you know, that day that they were going to, like, you know, bring all this in and and uh, and do that, Scientology was like, nope, nope, we'll settle, we'll settle, here's your millions, here you go. And they paid them off, right, and, and, and dropped the case. So, so if you can, could you build even on those things, on things that never got to trial? Um... In drafting stuff, probably as persuasive legal authority, probably not. Okay. Okay. Is that but one it, diff is that one barrier in in dealing with Scientology? Is so few cases have actually made it in front of a jury with them. 
it's, well, the critical issue here isn't just jury trials. You can also have judges trying facts. Okay. That's actually a lot easier. Uh, but I would guess that juries are probably a heck of a lot more sympathetic to plaintiffs against Scientology than judges are. Yeah, it should. I mean, it shouldn't be. We shouldn't. I, I don't want to win these cases on appeal to emotion. You know what I mean? I understand the human nature aspect of that, but I, I, I and I'll and I'll take a win that we can get. But I, I really feel that we do have the facts on our side if they can merely let be be presented and played out. And well, it's, it's also it's, harder to intimidate uh, twelve people than one. That's true. That's very true. Uh huh. Okay. So moving forward then, I mean, if this is our sort of analysis of this is, look, they really didn't bring their A game. They really could have brought a lot more facts and evidence to the table, and they really could have built a stronger case. If that's, it, if that's the situation, and it sounds like from your analysis it is, and that's what we're going with, what do we, is, is there anything that we ex-members can do to, because all of us are willing to go way out of our way to try to make something happen with this. And, and we are all very frustrated at the lack of progress and seeming, you know, impenetrable walls that we are running into. So breaking the problem down into solvable components is, to me, good news. Because it this gives me an avenue of approach and it gives me some hope that maybe what we've been doing hasn't been working, not because of the First Amendment and their religious protections, but maybe just because we need to bring an A-game case. And that has not been done with this strategy that Scientology has successfully been applying in the last few cases of religious arbitration and contract law. And... Um... The law around arbitration has been uh, moving over the past few decades. So uh, it's also rather different from the way the Supreme Court handles it, from the way California does. There's kind of a, a conflict there. So uh, remember that federal law uh, preempts state law in many areas. Okay. And so when you have uh, California trying to pass a law uh, prohibiting mandatory arbitration and employment contracts, there's a question of, is that preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act? And you're going to end up with a, uh, a, uh, a, a conflict there. Right. In the, it, uh, and to put this in simpler terms, it, it, would, it be, would it be a similar uh, conflict, maybe a more obvious conflict, if you tried to say ban all guns in 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 a state, and then the well, Second Amendment comes into play, and they go, yeah, yeah, no, you don't get to do that. Uh, yes, but less severe than that. Well, sure, yeah, it's an exaggerated example to make a point. Okay, fair enough. So, okay, so how does that fa factor into what we can do to move forward here? Um. Uh at least a couple of cases recently by the Supreme Court, uh, Buckeye Check Cashing Center, uh, and I can't remember the other one, uh, held that uh, people can't, uh, that uh, unconscionability in a, con in a contract that has an arbitration clause is up to the arbitrator to decide. It's not up to Say the that court. again? Yeah, that seems like it has a lot of danger to it. 
Yeah. What was that? Did, did, did I want to make sure I understood exactly what you said? Because I that sounds a little there, weird. What say that? There again? are a couple major contract defenses, mm-hmm. uh, uh, such as fraud, duress, and unconscionability. Okay. But, uh, and unfortunately, the wording of the Supreme Court has been vague on this point. Uh, but they held that in a contract involving in a contract that has an arbitration clause, uh, the determination that the contract as a whole is unconscionable is up to the arbitrator to decide. The arbitrator to decide. Right. Well, how is that supposed to work if the arbitrator is working for one side? Which is a different kind of defense, which relates particularly to arbitration. But let's remember that the contract resolution part of uh, arbitration law has been changing. And it is changing in favor of mandatory arbitration. So you where are still we going? have major defenses uh, such as fraud and duress, mm-hmm. but probably not the sheer fact that it's unconscionable. Okay. And what is meant legally by unconscionable? What does that mean? There are two kinds. You have procedural unconscionability and substantive unconscionability. Procedural is uh, what are the circumstances in which it was signed? Okay. Like holding a gun uh, to somebody's head. Well, that would be direct. That'd be direct. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, something like I don't know. Uh, you're in a crowded environment. A bunch of people are shouting at you. It doesn't seem particularly coercive, but it's not an environment conducive to properly understanding what's going on. Oh. Okay. Okay. That has some applicability here. So, so you're saying that according to the Supreme Court of the United States, it's up to the Church of Scientology right now to it's decide. It's up to the arbitrator. The arbitrator. Now, let's remember to treat several of the, these issues as separate. They are related, but individual elements. Okay. And you can knock out an element while still analyzing the rest. Got it. Okay. Well, obviously, in the case of the Church of Scientology doing arbitration, it's going to be a Scientologist in good standing who's going to be the arbitrator, yeah? And moving on to the arbitration element, uh, there is a def- uh, it is possible to argue that the arbitrator is, uh, is impermissibly biased. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. what does that mean? That's going to be kind of fact-dependent and require a lot of evidence. This is another th- area in which details are absolutely critical. It seems like there are a number of straws on which this argument is built that could be busted out from underneath it. What you're talking about is one of the key ones. There is it's impossible, and it is provable to show that it is impossible for a Scientologist in good standing to objectively evaluate claims against the Church of Scientology. And part of that has to do with specific knowledge of how uh, how SPs are supposed to be treated. Yep. And the process of check, sec checking and other things. Yeah. But that needs to be articulated. Right. And it's not merely that 
oh, uh, the person is subject to some moral concerns. It's no, they're subject to immediate disciplinary concerns that can cost them thousands of dollars at the least. That's right. Not to mention enforced separation from loved ones. I mean, there, there's no way that's not duress. There is just no way that's not a duress situation. Now, there's the evidentiary factor of, well, I don't, maybe other uh, family members just decided they didn't want to associate with someone. Because let's remember that lawyers who sometimes argue on popular causes tend to get uncomfortable looks from a lot of people. Well, no doubt. But you can show but with Scientology. You have to distinguish that. You have to articulate right. the facts to distinguish uh, between uh, people uh, organically being kind of leery of other people yep. and what looks like a uh, separate from them or we will uh, impose a whole bunch of requirements on you. That's right. And, what, really and again, this this can this could this is not rocket science to prove this. You can use social media, you can use letters, you can use correspondence, you could use all kinds of things to show that we had a perfectly wonderful relationship right up to the point that you said you're not a, you know you didn't want to do Scientology anymore. And then we have this policy letter from L. Ron Hubbard and this policy letter from L. Ron Hubbard that specifically state it is a crime in Scientology to continue to associate with someone who says that they are publicly withdrawing from Scientology. So therefore, it's the, the causative agent in this relationship break is clearly the Church of Scientology, not Aunt Jemima just doesn't like you anymore. You know what and, I mean? And you have to show that it isn't just a uh, straw that broke the camel's back, but uh, the two-by-four that ended up whacking the camel repeatedly. Exactly. But I think you could make a case for this using the policies right in the church's literature. And the fact that you have proof that they continue to apply those. Exactly. And we see this, you know, abundantly in case after case after case. I mean, shit, there's so much evidence on Tony Ortega's blog of this stuff, you know, of enforced separation, etc. I mean, you could cite this stuff, right? And you need details. Yeah. But yeah. See, this the is the evidence point. is there. So it's almost like they're turning in a short story manuscript or an outline or a draft or something to the judge when, in fact, they need to be given him war and peace. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's clear. That's clear now. And and it's good because it gives us a direction to go for the future. And that's really what I'm, I, again, I will continue articulating that because I want to make super clear. I'm not trying to rain on anybody. I'm not trying to, you know, to cast stones. I'm involved in this. I mean, I, you know what I mean? I, I, I want this to work. I don't want to just be, you know, the guy on the sidelines going, yeah, you stupid idiots. That is not what this is about, you know. So I, I just got to keep saying that in very plain English because it's so easy to assume intent, you know, and and people get pretty pretty nasty about that. So I want this to work. And I think that this is giving me a little bit of hope that maybe in the future we can make this work if it can be done right. And uh, I think another thing that went wrong with uh, the Haney case was a reliance on dramatic statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to make a broad, uh, let's dispense with an entire class of arbitration uh, argument instead of making a narrow, particular, and irrefutable argument. Do you think uh, that comes out of the personal injury history? Do person? I worked for. Here's here's my background. Okay, that, that I can look at and talk about that at all. 
I was a legal secretary back in the day when I was working back in the Church of Scientology in Santa Barbara. I had a side, you know, side jobs. And one of those jobs that I had for probably a year or two was working as a secretary, typist, manus, you know, guy for a personal injury attorney. It's the only job I ever quit on moral grounds up until, until I left Scientology, of course. Um, but job-wise, it was the only job I ever went, I can't, I, I have a moral compass, I can't keep doing this work. That we're, we're, we're clearly representing people who do not deserve to, you know, be, have millions of dollars rain down on them. And we're making claims in these documents that, that, are, just, uh, that are just completely not true. But I noticed that a lot of the language is not just standardized, it's dramatic language. Uh, yes. That was my own personal anecdotal experience, though, is that I, I don't want hasty generalizations. Is that a, a thing with personal injury cases that they tend to go towards the dramatic? I don't know. There okay. is a reputation, at least in the broader society, and uh, some personal injury lawyers are noted for being for building their sense of identity around uh, a dramatic battle and millions awarded. And some attorneys have difficulty really getting into uh, the task if they don't psych themselves up emotionally. Others are very different. I'm one of those who uh, much prefers a dispassionate approach. Uh, so some of it is probably personality. Some of it might be that the people with a more warrior sense of personality drift towards personal injury uh, rather than other uh, fields. Got it. I don't know. Yeah. It could be all or either or none. No, totally. I was like I said, we're just doing educated conjecture here on some of this, but I but I appreciate your input because you know this, you know that space and that world better than I do. So, uh, so you know, you you wonder, you wonder how these things happen, why why they happen, but regardless of why, you know, and uh, we don't have to get into assuming intent or anything, and we just know that these cases aren't aren't panning out. Another and, possibility is I saw Marcy Hamilton's name on uh, some of the filings, and she's a professor. And one of the dangers of academia is that a person can get very enamored with a core idea and fail to consider uh, alternative arguments uh, in a way that would normally be kind of beaten out of you in, by losing a case. Mm. Okay. So um, when you're arguing at a high level like the Supreme Court, you can still have a theory, and uh, the court is simply selecting from uh, multiple uh, plausible theories. Uh, but when you're lower down in academia and you're not arguing in front of the Supreme Court, you have the danger of not getting the critical feedback that is necessary to evaluate, is this a plausible, reasonable uh, theory and what are the consequences? Got it. And it takes personality. It takes feedback. Just remember that academics are not perfect. They oftentimes go into something because they are fascinated with it, and that fascination can come with a failure to evaluate it critically. 
That's a very good point, and one that I have certainly found to be true. Not with Marcy. I, you know, I've had Marcy on this podcast. She's a wonderful woman, but I do get your point about bias and and personal views, because we're all blind to some things. There's no one who's you know who's unbiased in every direction, right? We've all got our our pet peeves. We've all got our worldviews and our ideas about how things should be and how they could be. And sometimes we, you know, mistake those or put filters in place to see the world through certain colors and certain ideas. So certainly get that. It's no hit on any one individual to to Uh, say we're like that. Yeah. Uh, There was a panel at my law school on uh, civil asset forfeiture. when when the police seize uh, uh, funds or assets uh, based on the assumption that they were involved in criminal activity. Yep. Uh, and that's been pretty controversial. Yep. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know that I'm down the, for it personally. Uh, the panel was uniformly against it. Yeah. But if it's so pervasive, I wondered, hey, uh, if it's so pervasive, then surely there's some argument for it. Mm-hmm. Then what is it? So I asked the panel that. And one of the professors seemed shocked and offended at it. She couldn't imagine why anybody would think there was an argument for it. Wow. So another professor right. actually had to answer the question and point out, well, um, sometimes you just want to remove assets from people uh, like the mafia, who you know you're, they're using it for criminal activity, uh, and in, you can't necessarily convict them of it, but you can at least try to keep them from doing it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's a matter of personality. Of uh, It's not enough to know that it is a net negative. You also have to be able to articulate the arguments for and against. Right. And well, that this, requires some self-discipline. Without question. And in fact, really what you're doing right now is reiterating John Stuart Mill uh, from On Liberty, which is the classic seminal work on freedom of speech and on critical thinking and analysis in that, you know, if you cannot articulate the other opponent, your opponent or the other side's argument as well as they can you probably don't understand it, and it's going to impact your own understanding of your own side, your own position. Because if you, you, you know, your position doesn't exist in a vacuum; it exists as the opposite of another position. And that other position, by understanding it and being able to articulate it yourself, you strengthen your own argument if you do it right. You know, because you you figure out what's what's wrong on your side, and you can counter it. You're familiar with that. Um, I'm familiar with that argument. I did not attribute it to John Stuart Mill, but it is certainly a pervasive one. Yeah, no, it's a big point out of John Stuart Mill and it comes from On Liberty and it's, and it's, uh, I love that guy for that kind of thinking, you know, because he's right, you know, and, and it's a, and the anecdote you gave is a perfect example of, of, uh, of why it's a good idea because then you have somebody on a panel going, well, this is bad. And who couldn't think of a single reason why it could be good? I mean, talk about a you know a, that that's that's just that's just straight up bias. That's not you know that's not a well reasoned position. So it's interesting. And that is one of the dangers uh, academic lawyers can get into that practitioners would not have. 
But the flip side is that practitioners can oftentimes lose sight of theoretical coherence that academics would have. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Either side has strengths, either side has weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're all supposed to be fence sitters. I mean, I can see how this could be grossly misinterpreted. So let me be clear. I'm not saying you can't hold a position. I'm saying that you hold the position better if you actually understand and can articulate the other, oh, yeah. the opponent. And that's part side. of why people have lawyers on staff. They're not just there to handle legal issues. They're there as kind of the royal smart person who can uh, understand the counter arguments and think about what the other side might be planning. Yep. Uh, and worried about better than someone who is just focused on achieving one mission. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Okay, let me ask you one other question, and maybe we'll move toward wrapping up here, because it's something I've always wondered about. Um, Well, not always wondered about. I'm pretty sure I understand this, but but I want to be sure I do. If Valerie takes this, you know, case to the Supreme Court, I I think state Supreme Court is what she's working on right now. Um, And it looks like we, you know, she's built a case on some straws that, you know, are pretty easily being knocked over right now and, and the whole thing's tilting as a result. So I don't have a lot of hope based on what we've already talked about and the cases it's progressed so far that the Supreme Court's going to look at this preponderance of information at, it, because it's not a preponderance of information. There's not a lot of information there compared to what there could be or should be, as we've been discussing. So do they get a chance on the way to the Supreme Court to fill in the blanks now, or is it, or is the appeal process just, there it is, and that's all you get? That's one of the more complicated areas of civil procedure. Oh, is it? And oh, uh, I, I don't a... know California civil procedure. Okay. So you don't know if they uh, can add those facts in now? Um, I would guess that I am guessing here. Fair enough. That what's going up to the California Supreme Court is a narrow issue uh, that once disposed of would be sent back down to the lower court for further proceedings based on it. Got it. However, uh, she might be able to uh, ask leave to further amend her complaint and hopefully fill in critical details. Got it. Okay. So there's a possibility. That's my biggest hope. Yeah. I don't know how likely that is. Fair enough. And I don't either. And I I guess we'd have to get into the weeds on the appeal process in California to find out how much latitude they have to go back and fill in blanks or add more information or make the case stronger for the Supreme Court. Failing that, let's let's say – they don't get to do that, or they don't get the process of, uh, or they don't succeed for whatever reason. Does she have recourse in that? Could she, maybe recourse is the wrong word. Does she get another shot? Could she come back with a different team and not necessarily bring the same charges? Or could she, does she get a second shot because it didn't go to trial? I think uh, there is a key question of whether something is dismissed with prejudice or without prejudice. Oh. If it is dismissed without prejudice, uh, you can bring it again. Okay. If it is dismissed with prejudice, you can't bring it again. Got it. Okay. That and that's and what would in this case specifically? 
do you have any idea what would be a, deter a determining factor as to whether it would be dismissed with or without prejudice? I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. It's a California thing. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. If you don't want to conjecture on that, I won't make you. Uh, okay. So, so here we sit now going, okay, we got to, uh, we got to strengthen, you know, the front end of this thing. Any other advice based on your review of this that we haven't covered? Anything else you think should be is an important point of this that that we that I didn't think to ask you about? Um, I would urge people to uh, to detail what they were thinking about when they signed those uh, contracts hmm. because. Apparent from a little snippet I've read, apparently that arbitration is supposed to be a committee of evidence. Uh, it would and be. It would be similar. I don't know that it's a committee of evidence. Maybe that's. Is that what it said? Um. Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, they would fit. It, the framework of it would would make some degree of sense. So the pitfalls of a committee of evidence would need to be. Uh, articulated, but also, uh, does the Committee of Evidence get used for arbitration purposes? Not just Scientology punishing members uh, or evaluating uh, charges against members, but for resolving disputes between members. Yes, I can tell you with authority that it is. I sat on such a Committee of Evidence. What was it like? Like any other Committee of Evidence. Couple people. We get assigned to listen to this case. There is a list of charges that we are investigating. Uh, we interview all the interested parties, the people involved, and we then meet. All of this is recorded, not transcribed, but certainly recorded, um, notes kept. And then um, we decide our recommendations for what should be done charge by charge with the interested parties. In the case of two conflicting parties, you decide what the resolution of the thing is gonna be, who was wronged, how were they wronged. All this is typed up and put up in a, in a proposed draft document, which is then sent to the Continental Justice Chief for approval, who then, if he's okay with it, sends it on to the International Justice Chief for final approval. Once he stamps it as approved, or kicks it back for changes or recommendations that he's got, like this is off the rails, you guys are finding this person innocent when he's clearly guilty on charge three, for example, of, of 10, you know, uh, you guys got to go back and rework this or I will disband you and we'll start again because the whole thing is also supposed to happen in a very crunch short period of time. So that's basically how the process went uh, the, the times that I was involved in it. And were those charges uh, pertaining to business disputes, or was it this person claimed he was uh, 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 interpreting uh, this bit of Scientology incorrectly, or what? Well, you, COMEVs can cover anything. Um, COMEVs can also be held if things are getting better to investigate why. So a COMEV is supposed to be a very general tool to investigate at a deep level. It's the most formal investigatory body that's put together at a temporary purpose, you know, for, for, a, for a specific purpose. 
within Scientology. So, you know, a committee of evidence can declare you. You can go anywhere from being declared suppressive and expelled from the church uh, to nothing. You were you, to be fully validated and, vind- and vindicated. So anything in between. Um, ComEbs have been used for disputes between Scientologists. That's where I, that's one of the ones I was on where a celebrity, in fact, was cheated out of money or felt he was been cheated out of money from another Scientologist in a business relationship. And rather than go to court, we settled it with the ComEv. Okay. That seems like a pretty classic arbitration yep. uh, situation. Yep. Pretty much. Fully controlled uh, by the church, but the what one of the key points to it was the fact that it really does come to or potentially comes to an individual decision point. The Continental Justice Chief or the International Justice Chief, as the ones who actually stamp and seal their approval of the process, can and have, I've, I've witnessed it a couple times, uh, arbitrarily dictate on their own without interviewing the people involved, without even listening to the tapes, they can just read the committee's recommendations and go, yeah, no, you guys got it wrong. And that is a critical point. Yep. Because in other organizations, when there is internal arbitration, it is assumed that the authority is based on the delegation of authority from hire, not the direct supervision by hire. Right. And no, I have. I we got into fights. I mean, I have seen the C, the, the CJC or the IJC kick things back, and be flat out. Look, if you guys don't get your shit together as a committee, I'm going to come have you guys. And that needs that absolutely needs to be articulated. Right. That's that's what I'm talking about. And it's like these are the experiences that we have. You can't find that written in any book anywhere. And unless you can subpoena the records, you know, from the church, and they're not going to give them to you, you know, unfiltered, uh, you're not going to see those communications because those are in writing. It's not the IJC, the International Justice Chief, walking down the hall to us. He's over in another building on the other side of town. The paperwork goes back and forth. So it is in writing. You know, these things that I am claiming are real, that you could find them. But it would take a tremendous amount of work to find that evidence. But I'd be more than happy to, to find do a deposition. That, to find the original source documents. But yeah. testimony to that effect yep. uh, would be evidence. I, I, it might not be the best evidence, that. but that is depending on how able uh, you are to subpoena documents, that may be the best evidence you got. Yeah. Well, there you go. So – there you go. Well, that's the kind of thing that us ex-members can pony up and give. You know, we can give uh, depositions, we can give statements, we can write up whatever affidavits, we can do that work. And what I would love to see is people drafting detailed accounts of particular facets of Scientology. Uh, and when a case comes, you can simply grab that for the detailed account, uh, see if this fits with the individual plaintiff's experience, and then bring it forward instead of just relying on the plaintiff to tell everything they know, which might not be a lot. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there we go. Doors opening up of possibility all around us here. 
Well, I, I hope this helped. I wish I could have gone into more detail, uh, but <laughs> no, uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll just, I'll just confess right now. I, I kept Cyprian on a little bit of a leash on the on the legal terminology. <laughs> but Cyprian, you were great, man. You really, this was really good. I, you really helped me understand some of this process better, uh, which was the goal of this conversation, as far as I was concerned, and then uh, helped me to share it with everybody else out there, too, which was the other goal of this conversation. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time and and uh, work you did to review all those documents for me and 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 share your opinions here. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. And uh, remember, something can be done about it. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you found it somewhat educational, uh, informative, and maybe possibly a little bit entertaining, uh, at least in some parts. Thanks very much for watching. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.